Welcome to the Illuminated Word Podcast. In this podcast, we take a reading from Scripture each day. We look at the background material to that passage and also application for us. Once again, welcome to the Illuminated Word Podcast. Welcome to the Illuminated Word. My name is Devin Morris. Today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. I will read our section and then we will get into it. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Um, of course, because, you know, Greek is my language, uh, <laughs> we're going to get into a little bit of the Greek here to begin with because I think it draws out some really really cool points that um, you can catch in English sometimes, in some English transversion, tra- uh, translations sometimes, but I think it's worth pointing pointing to. So just to recap, so John the Baptist has come on the scene. He came at the beginning of chapter 3. He is preaching uh, repentance based on the coming of the kingdom of God. You need to repent because the kingdom of God is coming. Uh at his word, at his preaching, at his baptizing, we see a bunch of Pharisees and Sadducees come out to observe him, observe him baptizing. John rebukes them. You know, we don't even get a conversation or anything. It's it's just bad that they were even there, apparently, which will, the text kind of illuminates that a little bit. John rebukes them, though, and his message to them is several fold, okay? Kind of five points that um, I guess we'll, we'll focus on. One, they are vipers. Worse than vipers, they're brood or children of vipers. Number two, their ancestry won't save them. Three, they need to bear fruit that evidences repentance. Four, the baptism of Jesus will be different than John's. Five, Jesus will bring the judgment that John is warning them about. So let's start in verse seven. We'll go over at a time. And uh, verse seven is really, we're going to look at the most Greek, so... Uh, hold on to your hats. When uh, we have the um, verb here for saw, it can kind of have a causative meaning. So it's because John sees them coming, he says this. So it, that doesn't give us enough right off the bat to make the point I'm about to say until you get into this uh, prepositional phrase saying um, to his baptism. Okay, there is a, a certain preposition with a certain accusative, which is baptism there, and it can kind of mean to the place of his baptism. And along with this verb for coming to his baptism, um, it could mean that they were coming in opposition to him. It's used in two other times in the New Testament, once in Luke and once in Matthew, where this verb is with this same preposition. And again, it can give the connotation that they're just not coming to his baptism, but they're coming to the place of his baptism in opposition to what he's doing. And uh, we'll, well, let's draw out that a little bit. I, I think it's worth drawing that out. Why would Pharisees be opposed to um, 
to John preaching baptism, preaching this repentance. Um, but but lastly, one last thing on this preposition uh, for to his baptism. To there is a Greek word epi, and it could show, and I know this is crazy when you get this much from a single preposition, uh, but it but we can in the way that the New Testament writers use it. But this epi word here for two could show that both groups, both Pharisees and Sadducees, were coming seeking baptism, actually. They, they were coming to his baptism in order to participate in it. Um, and really just to do it as we kind of can pick up through the rest of the Gospels and their personality, persona, political background, theological background, really just to kind of take all measures possible in avoiding God's wrath. So let's draw that out a little bit. I think it's worth kind of talking about who the Pharisees and who the Sadducees are. First off, Pharisees are not the bad guys. Uh, too often in New Testament studies, um, in in pulpits, in um, Bible classes, you will have teachers, preachers, say things like the Pharisees, you know, are the worst of the worst. They're the antithesis of, of, of Jesus. Don't be a Pharisee. And Pharisee pretty much comes to mean hypocrite. And that's just not right. If you, for one, think about how Jesus actually praises the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount, I think it requires us to step back a little bit and say, well, hold on. Maybe the picture I have drawn out in my mind is not actually the truth here. Jesus has several close relationships uh, with several Pharisees. The book of Luke has it more often, chapter 7, 11, 13, and 14, but you get similar stories in Mark 12 and in Matthew 23. So it's kind of all over. We see a a non-combative, uh, no aggression at all in, in the conversation between Jesus and Pharisees many times, and, it, and it's because Jesus actually shared more in common with Pharisees than he than he uh, had differences with. You know, it's it's probably much more accurate to compare rather than contrast. When you start contrasting Jesus's teachings and the Pharisees, uh, you know, we get all of these, you know, big teaching points and and things we can draw to say how the Pharisees were you know, doing something wrong, interpreting something wrong, but really they had a lot in common with Jesus. Because they had so much in common, it's the differences that stand out. And really, when looking at Scripture, there are only four major differences. One is Jesus' association with sinners, because this kind of flew in the face of what they considered to be a proper separation from the world. And that has even evolved uh, over the you know the two centuries um, that have gone by between us and them, um, we all have our you know you you ask any member in a church you're probably going to get a thousand different interpretations of what our involvement with the world should be. Um, interpretations like we are synonymous with the world, but we just bring Jesus to it, or we stay as the church and try to bring people into the church. Uh, you know, sanctifying people that way, or you know, uh, uh, we we sanctify the family first, which then sanctifies the church, which then sanctifies the state. You got all these different ideas on how the church is supposed to be involved with the world. So we should be able to level with that. 
that's why the Pharisees don't understand Jesus in the way that he conducted his ministry, because to them, he wasn't doing something that was taught in Scripture. He wasn't doing with, uh, and now this is where the line's being crossed, is he wasn't doing things according to their interpretation of what Scripture says our involvement with the world should be. So that's one of the ways that they're different. A second would be the authority, uh, their authority of tradition as seen in teachings on ritual purity. You know, uh, his disciples running through and, and picking the heads off the grain uh, and, and Jesus' teachings on that. Uh, the two last ones are similar because, again, it just has to do with interpretation, uh, Sabbath keeping, and teachings on divorce. But beyond those four things, Jesus and the Pharisees had a lot in common. Um, if it wasn't for the Pharisees' kind of tight hold on tradition and sticking to their particular dogmatic interpretation, um, Jesus and the Pharisees uh, would have got along pretty good, I think. Sadducees are a bit different. They're not so much a, a hmm, how to put this, a churchy group. They're more of a political group. They were highly influenced by money. They wanted to do whatever they could in, in, in the decades leading up to Jesus, do whatever they could to hold on to power. So they're willing to do what Rome says. They're willing to uh, follow the teachings of the Pharisees if it means everything's going to stay kosher and uh, they're going to be able to stay in a, uh, a ruling class. So um, uh, they're really only known by what they disagreed with. So really the one big thing that people bring up is that they didn't believe in the resurrection, and that's fine. Uh, the only the other difference, only other difference we know is that they really only observed the Torah as authoritative. So uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are the only books of the Hebrew Bible that they really paid much attention to. They they knew the prophets, they knew the historical books, they knew all those things, they knew the books of poetry and, and prophet, uh, prophets and things like this, but only observed the Torah. So that's why Jesus, when he starts to talk to them about the resurrection, he doesn't turn to a passage like, Isaiah or Daniel, he doesn't quote from those where you would have got really, you know, great the great material on the resurrection. Uh, instead, he quotes from Exodus three, which is kind of odd. But knowing that they only deem that as authoritative, Jesus says, "Hey, I can pull truth out of out of Exodus too." So that's what he does. Um, and that's all in in verse seven. We really didn't get to, get to all of it. One last thing to point out is this uh, insult he gives him is, "You brood of vipers." It was believed naturally in antiquity that vipers were evil, but there was this really weird teaching going around that um, the children of vipers, you know, young vipers would come back to eat their mothers uh, out of vengeance for the mother killing the father during uh, procreation. And so to be a child of a viper was even a worse insult than just being a, a plain old viper. And... Um, and then right after that, he has this really sarcastic comments. You know, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, so John is just, uh, you know, he's he's got a mouth on him. He uh, he really gives it back to the Pharisees and Sadducees for coming to him most likely in a position of opposition and really just, hey, we're going to get baptized by your baptism, John, uh, just to make sure we, we make it into heaven. And we don't really probably believe what you're doing here. And so that's why he's going to come back and say, hey, you actually have to bear fruit in keeping with this type of repentance that I'm talking about. This repentance that John was preaching was not one that was um, maybe understood at that time. 
uh, repentance was not, it, this was like a Gentile proselyte type of repentance. It's where you totally are turning away from um, the life you live to live this particular life. And it actually kind of contradicts a lot of our understanding of, sometimes our understanding of repentance when we try to say that repentance is just a change of mind. It's much deeper than that. It's a turning away from a lifestyle. It's completely doing a 180 and walking away from a path we were at one time walking down. I think we can all understand verse 9. Uh, we kind of know this about the Jews. They really clung to their lineage, their ancestry. Um, but John just reemphasizes that it doesn't matter. Uh, God can create more people out of stones if he wants to. Uh, and he says because the axe is even right now. That's kind of the immediate that's that's brought out in verse 10 even now right now this is happening this is immediate the axe is on the root of the trees uh, the way that that's phrased in the greek uh, you know it's it's talking about the tap root of the tree that that root that that brings life to the tree uh, every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire emphasizing this repentance this, uh, hey, if you're really going to participate in this baptism, your life is now going to have to reflect it. Because he's just coming with the baptism of repentance. But the one coming, the coming one, is is the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Some disagreement, a little bit of disagreement out there in as to what these two types of baptisms are. Um, I think that's kind of settled down. I think most people can feel pretty comfortable in saying the Holy Spirit is, is the baptism that we have received, believers have received, that came to us on at Pentecost. And this baptism of fire is that of condemnation. Um, when he gets into verse 12, though, he kind of adds another level to it in saying that the threshing floor uh, is, uh, the, the wheat is being gathered into the threshing floor. Um, the wheat will be gathered there, but the chaff is going to be burnt up. And that's a perfectly fine metaphor, except for the fact that I think you and I know that chaff from the wheat doesn't burn forever. So John here is kind of emphasizing what this uh, baptism of fire, what this judgment coming from the Christ will look like. It's unquenchable. It's eternal. And that is a pretty um, important teaching for John and for Jesus as we'll see throughout the book of Matthew, as they uh, give really big teachings on hell. they talk more. Jesus talks more about hell than he does heaven in the book of Matthew. Um, so really interesting stuff here. I uh, hope it um, has pushed you to read it for yourselves, study it, uh, take it into your heart, and carry it with you throughout this week. Uh, I pray that you're looking for ways to love and serve your neighbor in genuine and sincere ways. Peace and love.